0: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I want to thank you all for uh, being with us. We're going to turn our attention today uh, to to the media uh, themselves, uh, because there have been a lot of stories about media in the news recently, everything from the stories about the fact that we now know Fox News personalities uh, continued to uh, promote the big lie about the 2020 election, even though they exchanged private messages among themselves about how foolish the people promoting those fake uh, 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 election stories were. Uh, It appears there is going to be an assault on a 60-year-old U.S. Supreme Court decision, New York Times v. Sullivan, which really established very firmly protections for journalists in libel cases. Florida's legislature right now is looking at at, uh, measures that could end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. And here in Georgia, there continue to be uh, questions among journalists about open records uh, laws. Who is, who isn't covered? How easy is it for journalists to get access to significant information? Um, And before I introduce the panel, I've heard from any number of you, uh, I mentioned on the show on Monday that I had major oral surgery last week, and that I knew that I was having a little trouble with my vowels and consonants. Uh, I'm not speaking quite as well as I'd like to. number of you have commented on that. I'm very sorry. I'm doing my best to get past it uh, and uh, to get back to normal as soon as possible. All right, enough of that. Uh, Kevin Riley is with us, as he is every Thursday, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So Kevin, you're Basically a perfect uh panelists have on the show. Well, Bill, I've been on the show
2: a lot. That's the first time you've ever called me a perfect panelist. But I will say that this is a topic of intense and personal interest in and uh, importance to me. And I'd like to say one thing before we start, just, just so I don't forget to say it later. So bear with me. When we have our conversation in this show about, in particular, public records and the and the rights that journalists seek to access information, you know, you have a very thoughtful audience and I want them to know. When we talk about that, we are attempting to exercise a right as representatives of every citizen. As a journalist, I have no more right to a public record than any person listening to the show. So when we're fighting with government officials over that, we are fighting for the public because we have the time and the resources to do so. And I never want people to forget that.
0: All right. Thank you. We'll get into that in more detail uh, later on in uh, the show. Anthony Michael Christ, professor of constitutional law at Georgia State University, is back with us. How are you, Anthony?
1: I'm doing well. Good to be back.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here. And we have two new panelists joining us today, I'm happy to say. Claire Norins is the director of the First Amendment Clinic, at the University of Georgia School of Law. Hi, Claire, it's great to have you here. You have a really long and important background in civil rights law before you got to the University of Georgia. Help our uh, listeners understand just what the role of the First Amendment Clinic is.
3: Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Bill. I'm really pleased to be here. So the First Amendment Clinic at the University of Georgia, first and foremost, is training law students, future lawyers to be defenders and advocates for expressive freedoms, so freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to petition the government for grievances and the right to peaceably assemble. Um, So we provide students the opportunity to engage in mostly federal court, sometimes state court litigation around First Amendment and also government access issues. So um, we do a fair bit of work around transparency laws like the Georgia Open Records Act and the Georgia Open Mm -hmm. Meetings Act, access to
0: court proceedings. Uh, you are also on the board of the Georgia First Amendment Foundation. Before we move on, uh, though, Claire, I, I do think it's interesting. We're not going to talk about it in detail today, but there's a subject that's come up on our show several times, and, and it's one that uh, your clinic filed an amicus brief in, and that's the Camden County uh, unfolding story in which residents down there passed by a pretty big margin, a referendum saying they didn't want a spaceport in uh, Camden, but the county commission decided to ignore them and move forward. And it's raised significant questions about whether or not a government entity can overrule a citizen referendum. And you did file an amicus brief in that case, right?
3: Yes, we did. And we were very pleased with the outcome from the Georgia Supreme Court.
0: Thank you for uh, sharing that with us. We've talked about that story on on the show a number of times. We're also joined today by Tom Clyde. He is a partner at Kilpatrick Stockton. Tom, you do specialize in uh, media law. It's much of what you do. Uh, One of your clients being Cox Communications. When I was a reporter at WSB-TV, we turned to you often uh, for your help in understanding the legalities of stories that we were working on or in defending uh, the news organization at times when it was challenged. But it's a real pleasure to have you on uh, Political Rewind today, Tom.
4: It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate being invited and, and definitely have had the honor of representing the Cox Enterprises and Cox Media Group companies over many years. So it is, it's an area I'm very familiar
3: with.
0: Okay. um, Let's start with this. Um, I I, I want to talk about a recent poll that uh, was uh, just released a couple of weeks ago uh, by um, the Gallup and Knight Foundation, which shows us uh, the continuation of a trend that we know has been ongoing for some time now. And I'm going to throw out some figures and then let each of you uh, weigh in on what you think about what this poll tells us. And essentially what the polling says is we are at a low in the level of trust that the public has in the media. The foundation says it's a startling point and that many people who were polled actually believe that there is a de- a, um, an intent by the media to deceive, which is, I think, really uh, pretty remarkable. Um, and it—it's it, what's interesting about it is Kevin, I'll start with you on this. The uh, let me just read you a few more figures. Only 26% of Americans have a favorable opinion of the news media, the lowest that Gallup and Knight have recorded in five years. 53% have an unfavorable view. More Americans say they hold an unfavorable opinion of the news media across all political affiliations. Uh, Perceptions of political bias in news coverage have increased with independents driving the trend, followed by Republicans and then Democrats and young people have less faith in uh, the media than uh, older uh, folks. Um, The other thing that's kind of fascinating is that 72% of the people polled say that national news organizations have the resources and opportunity to report the news accurately and fairly But only 35% say most national news organizations can be relied on to deliver the information they need. All right. So that's just a starting point. Um, Kevin, your thoughts when you hear figures like that? Well it's it's very uh disturbing, upsetting
2: and um the the survey notes the trend among independents which is um disturbing. I mean we know that on the republican side it's long been a talking point to complain about the media. And so often when I would see the distrust numbers I would immediately go to republic people who affiliate as Republicans or conservatives to see how much it was driving the number. So to see independents becoming persuaded of that is also um, difficult. I do take some solace in a, in a few things because we're talking about the media and even that word inspires a view of a great big institutional faceless, you know, nameless forces at work. But we do know even from our own research, as well as this research, that people trust Local news organizations more.
0: Yeah, uh, the uh, that that's right, and I was going to uh, mention that as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, Knight and Gallup released a study. This one is a little older. Uh, this is a couple of years old, but it's the most recent I could find on the subject of local media. Six in ten Americans believe local news organizations are accomplishing. Most of the key tasks of informing communities, local journalists are seen as more caring, 36 percent, trustworthy, 29 percent or unbiased. But that's only 23 uh, percent, Claire. So if only in, even in local media, if only 23 percent believe that local media are unbiased, uh, that, that's reason for concern among journalists.
3: Definitely. And I think some of this stems from, as you mentioned, you know, younger folks have greater mistrust of the media. And I think that goes back to kind of the civic education that we're providing um, to students in terms of teaching them the importance of a free press and how to evaluate for themselves, whether uh, media is presenting balanced, objective, fact-checked information, or whether they are uh, pushing an agenda or uh selectively presenting the information. And so um, as an educator, you know, one of my interests is in uh, helping to educate young folks about um, the importance of being up to date on current events, not just getting your news from Facebook, um, how to sort of assess for yourself um, and think critically about information that you're receiving um, and which sources you trust.
0: All right, um, Anthony and then Tom, let me share with you some information from another poll that I think is really fascinating. Again, this, this poll is now, I think, about a, a little less than a year old. Uh, YouGov, which is obviously one of the better known polling organizations in the country, um, asked people about which news organizations they have trusted. And here's, here, Anthony, here's what's interesting. Number one in terms of trust is the Weather Channel. <laughs> 41% think that the information they get from the Weather Channel is uh, accurate, possibly because they can look out the window <laughs> and see how often Weather Channel is correct. BBC is second, 24%. PBS is at 15%. Uh, you can keep going down uh, the line, by the way, in interests of uh, being transparent. NPR, which we're a part of, is only 7% of trust or, or approval by the public. And then it goes down from there. The New York Times is at plus three. Um, CNN is at minus four. What's interesting is Fox News is at minus 14. And among other things, that tells us if we broke down the the um, uh, cross tabs on this, obviously we would see differences in terms of part, the partisan divide, Anthony.
1: Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is I'm not sure who these people are who uh, trust the the weather channel because it's never quite right for me. Um, but, <laughs> you know, we I think we have a tendency of looking at things through the prism, uh, you know, of, of where we are in the per- current moment and with a certain recency bias. We've always in the United States have had a deeply polarized media. If you look at the newspapers of the late 19th century, you had Republican newspapers, uh, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, and you had Democratic newspapers, right? Most of the major ones in the South. Um, And they were very partisan and polarized and and feeding people a a kind of slanted view of things. And so, um, you know, there's not, there's probably a lot of similarities in the way media is consumed now. But of course, that's unhealthy, right? To the extent that we're not consuming um, similar forms of media, but we're also not op- we're not operating in the same world of facts, right? And so there might have been something to be to be said of the 50s, 60s, and 70s when people are all tuning in to the same cable news networks and and people are reading the same newspapers, and we have a robust um, right local press. And and so I I think there is a real danger in the kind of self-selection bias and the way we get our our news. And then that might have an overall impact on how people see the media, right, more broadly, not just the kinds of of channels that they dislike or that they don't tune into.
0: Well, Tom, I want to get to you. And let me throw what... Go ahead. You go ahead.
4: No, no, please. Well, I, I would... I agree with what Anthony was saying, but also exactly what Claire was saying. Like a a real responsibility, I think, at this point is to try and provide more civic education to young people about the different ways that news organizations operate, because it is a more complicated ecosystem. The internet created a much more complicated ecosystem, and there's a wide diversity of news organizations with different levels of standards. And so for a young person, it is very difficult to figure that out quickly and understand it and embrace it but i do think that should be more part of our civic education because for the best news organizations in this country they remain every bit as good as they were years ago i would argue better Um, but there's a lot of, of of news organizations that don't meet that standard and so it's important for young people to understand that
0: uh kevin i want to pick up on something that anthony said though that i think is interesting I mean, he's completely correct that you can go back 50 years, uh, maybe less than that, and and in some cases still today, uh, I think about my own upbringing in Chicago. I knew that the Chicago Sun-Times was the more liberal newspaper, Chicago Tribune more conservative. There was a divide between the afternoon papers as well. But the difference there, Kevin, was that the news pages were still basically fact-based news reporting. It was on the editorial and opinion pages when we saw the difference in the philosophy. And, and one of the reasons that I think trust has diminished so dramatically is that people no longer believe that there is a separation of opinion from fact-based reporting in many uh, news organizations.
2: Right. I think you're correct, Bill, and I think we see that clearest in the cable news channels where um, they – they I mean, at least some of them uh, cover news during the day, and then they have uh, basically talk shows at night. And to get ratings on a talk show, you need some outrage. You need some people yelling at each other. You need some extreme opinions because otherwise it's boring television. And because there hasn't been clarity there and there hasn't been a – a commitment to fact-based reporting, then it—I think it confuses people because people, consumers, are not involved in the nuances of media operations and 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 questions that we deal with. They're, you know, they put on their television and they they watch or they listen as they do things. And and we're we have started working pretty hard at the managerial constitution to give people some insight into how we're reporting and the way we're reporting. But there's there needs to be more of that.
0: Um, all right, Claire, let's start digging into some of the headlines about media these days that I think reflect the growing mistrust that some people have for uh, media. And, and of course, the big story has been uh, the revelations in the lawsuit that the Dominion Voting Machines Company has brought against Fox News, alleging defamation Because Fox News did, in fact, for a very long time, perpetuate the big lie theory that Dominion's voting machines were uh, rigged to uh, give Joe Biden uh, victories in many states. So now we've learned uh, that, in fact, uh, the people uh, like Laura Ingram, like Sean Hannity, other stars on the Fox News network, uh, among themselves were trading messages saying, this is ridiculous. Some of these theories are so ridiculous. But they kept promoting them. Um, so what do we make? And how are we saying that? Then we also know now through a deposition that Rupert Murdoch recognized that they were lying as well, but basically shrugged it off and said, well, I could tell him to stop, but I didn't. Claire, t- talk about that a little. <sighs>
3: Sure. Well, first of all, the information that's come out through Dominion's summary judgment brief that was released is really staggering in terms of the widespread commonly held knowledge and belief that the big lie was a lie and that Dominion was not involved in stealing ballots and was not connected to Venezuela. And um, despite that widespread knowledge, um, those falsehoods continued to be amplified on FOX uh, for months. And I just want to underscore that while it's really important that we're getting this information now to see um, exactly, you know, the level at which it was known this was not the truth and it still was on the air, um, it doesn't fix the damage that was done. Um, The viewers that watched those shows and heard those narratives repeatedly expressed and endorsed by the Fox News shows, um, those those beliefs among the people, you can't go back and change that. Um, And that's in large part why we had the January 6th attack on the Capitol was that folks were so enraged at what they thought had been a stolen election um, and that it resulted in this unprecedented um upheaval in our, you know, the foundational systems of our democracy. Um, so I think while it's super important that we are getting access at least to some of the information in the Dominion case, because a lot of it is under seal. And I think that's something we should also talk about um, within this hour, um it's really not fixing the damage that was done back in late 2020 and early 2021.
0: Well, well, I, I want to keep talking about the Fox story, but while you've said it, w- tell me about your concerns about information in that case, in other cases, being under seal.
3: So in the Dominion case, you know, most of the substantive briefing on summary judgment, which is the, the stage in the case where the court is actually ruling on the merits of the claims and defenses in the case, um, most of that is under seal. And th- that's, in tension, a lot of tension with First Amendment law, as well as common law, the cases pending in New Jersey and New Jersey has a strong common law tradition of access to the courts that the public should be able to see um, what's being filed with the courts, both in terms of the legal arguments being made and the evidence that the parties are submitting to the court like emails, deposition transcripts, that sort of thing. And the idea is that the public really needs access to that to be able to understand the judicial process and to have faith in the outcome of that process. And in this case, huge amounts, most of the information is not publicly accessible, and therefore we're getting bits and pieces, but we're not getting the whole picture. Um, And so several media entities, including the New York Times and NPR and the Associated Press have um, written to the court and are seeking to intervene to try to challenge those ceiling decisions so that there can be more transparency about what is really a matter of huge, public interest and public importance in terms of allegations about election fraud and, um, you know, a major news work, Fox, you know, having known this was false and still perpetuated it. Like, these are things that the public really needs access to.
2: Kevin? You know, Bill, I, I'd like to jump in here, too, as we talk about this Fox thing, which is, I mean, I... When I've read this about what was going on, it's just absolutely appalling from a journalist's point of view. But I do think it's important to understand certain things. All of us in media seek to appeal to our audience. I mean, you and I talked earlier this week about this show and things we knew would be more interesting to your audience, and you think about that all the time. We think about it at the newspaper all the time. I'll give you an example. Um, that I think is easier to understand and less maybe polarizing. So we cover the Atlanta Braves. And if we're going to cover the Atlanta Braves for our audience, we're a little bit of a homer. Let's let's just let's just admit that. I mean, because the people who read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, they're rooting for the Braves for the most part. They want to know about the Braves. Our coverage reflects like, hey, here's what's going on with the Braves. Here's what's good about the Braves. If we wrote every day about how they stink compared to the New York Mets, I mean, people would quit reading us, right? So there's some as a practical matter, you have to pay attention to your audience and what they care about which is sort of the argument Fox seems to be making, right? But you, you cannot lie to your audience, right? And, and, you know, we can't go out and tell them the Braves are the best team in baseball, and every time they lose, the umpire made the
0: wrong call and the Mets cheated, mm-hmm. which is sort of like what Fox right. was doing. All right, Tom, I want to get you into this, but I want to go back to Fox again. Um, one of the things that's so distressing about this Fox story is we know that um, it all began basically on election night when Fox became the first news organization to call Arizona uh, for uh, Biden. It set off a firestorm among all of the Trump people out there who were outraged Fox would do that. They began turning their TVs to Newsmax. And, um, you know, other more conservative, what they thought were more reliably friendly news organizations. And much of the conversation among these Fox personalities was, hey, our stock price is going down. We're losing audience. We've got to keep perpetuating the big lie. That's not journalism, Tom. That isn't even close to what Kevin's talking about when he says, hey, at the AJC, we try to give better coverage to the Braves than than, uh, uh, maybe sometimes they deserve.
4: Well, and that's why I think this evidence coming out should be a very significant concern for, for Fox, but also for the public generally. Uh, from the outset of this case, Dominion has been arguing that they became a victim because Fox was concerned about losing audience, because Fox was worried that OAN and Newsmax was, was essentially taking their audience away. And There was reason to be skeptical of that. The scale of Fox is enormous. OAN and Newsmax are much smaller organizations. But now the email, uh, the texts that have come out, really show that was a significant concern. And it was a significant concern at the highest levels of Fox. Um, Both Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch were expressing concern and asking the news leadership to temper any uh, any statements by the Fox News anchors that would draw into question uh, these allegations about the election being steal uh, stolen. And so that's that's a pr- pretty significant development. It would be a significant development in any case, but it's particularly significant here because uh, essentially Fox has asserted as a defense that, hey, we just carried the allegations that were made by Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. We didn't endorse them. Um, But Rupert Murdoch's deposition suggests he conceded that they did endorse them as particularly their evening anchors.
0: So uh, to bring this around full circle before I've got to get to a break, Anthony, it's no wonder that public trust in media organizations is low. I mean, if you're a Fox uh, viewer and you love Donald Trump, you, you obviously think, great, there's, they're reporting uh, positive news about, about the big lie and whatever. Nevertheless, the fact of the matter is the larger public recognizes when they see stories like this that they have good reason to raise questions about the integrity of the media. And I'll go so far as to say, Anthony, I turn on MSNBC, understanding that what I'm going to see there is going to be, is going to be uh, filtered through a liberal lens. And there are times when I am just as skeptical and find myself being just as kind of amused by the spin they're putting on things, although I don't suspect they're lying the way Fox did in this case. But the point is, the cable media, and you're the one who said it, is totally bifurcated now.
1: Yeah, but I I think the the bigger problem might be is that people tend to circle the wagons around their own camps, right? So, um, you know, if I'm a Fox News fan uh, and a devoted watcher, then perhaps I don't, I'm not really aware of this information or perhaps I don't really care or perhaps I think it's right dominion and uh, liberals coming after Fox unfairly. And so I I think there is a real danger that, uh, you know, we're all warped by, Uh, right, repeated consumption over time and that there's just an inability to reach people with truth. And I I think that's the real danger that we have in society right now.
0: All right. There's a lot more I want to get to um, on the show today. Let's do this. Let's get our first break out of the way back with more with our panel. Thanks
4: for
2: listening to Political Rewind.
0: We're talking about media in the news on today's Political Rewind, joined by Tom Clyde, who is an attorney at Kilpatrick Stockton, does a great deal of, of media-related work. And I should have mentioned that when I first introduced you, Tom, you are on the Georgia First Amendment uh, Foundation, as is Claire Norens, who joined us, director of the First Amendment Clinic at the Georgia, University of Georgia School of Law, Anthony Michael Christ, constitutional Law professor at Georgia State and editor in chief of Vajc, uh, Kevin Riley. Uh, Tom, I want to start with you, if I may, on this segment. Um, we know that down in Florida, uh, Governor DeSantis is uh, very supportive and perhaps helping draft legislation that is going to take away any number of freedoms. Uh, I'm sorry, protections that uh, 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 journalists have. Against defamation, frivolous lawsuits, libel cases. And the ultimate goal is to get to the U.S. Supreme Court to, uh, I think, conservatives hope, overturn the 60 year old ruling in New York Times v. Sullivan, which was the crucial case for journalists that established their protections against uh, libel. Why has New York Times v. Sullivan? uh been so uh crucial to the journalism world
4: so it's it would be hard to overstate how important new york times versus sullivan and and the cases that followed it have been to journalism um that case was decided in 1964 it was essentially a decision that helped protect the new york Mm -hmm. times continue to report on the civil rights movement um and established essentially that public figures and then a subsequent decision uh, established that public officials and a subsequent decision established that public figures were going to have to show actual malice in order to obtain damages in a defamation case that is a very high standard of proof and so it provides a lot of protection to the media And it's particularly important in cases where the facts are still uncertain. In other words, it protects the media in reporting on very controversial topics. uh, And the media can only be held responsible for that if the media has a high degree of doubt about the truth it's reporting or, or literally believes it to be false. Let me give you a modern example where I think. The uh, New York Times decision had an enormous impact, and that's essentially the news reporting relating to the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement was really about, uh, obviously, women who'd been sexually harassed and sexually assaulted by very powerful men. It was very difficult for news organizations to report on that because it all happened behind closed doors. There wasn't evidence. But what enabled essentially The New York Times and other news organizations to really do stories that gave momentum to the Me Too movement was those individuals. Harvey Weinstein's an example were public figures. And so they could move forward with journalism on that topic, knowing that they were still protected. But without the actual malice standard, it's possible those stories never end up in print or never end up broadcast. And, And so the momentum of that movement was really facilitated by the New York Times versus Sullivan decision. Claire?
3: So, I think a uh, New York Times v. Sullivan is essential to protecting the media, but it also protects anyone else who speaks out against a person who's a public figure. Um, and so it protects. For instance, citizens groups that are um, speaking out on environmental issues against uh, politicians who want to develop environmentally destructive projects in their area. Or, you know, it um, protects the women who were subject to sexual harassment who want to speak out. Um, not necessarily through a news story, but, you know, in their own forum. Um, so I think we have to keep in mind that, yes, it's essential for media that we maintain the Sullivan actual malice standard, but it's also important for the everyday person who wants to be able to speak up and criticize government officials or criticize um, otherwise um, high profile people who, who qualify for that public figure status. Um, so, you know, There's a really great quote from Sullivan from um, Justice Brennan, and he says, you know, without this actual malice standard, which is the higher standard that a defamation plaintiff has to show if they're a public figure, he says, without that, it will just, you know, deter critics of official conduct from voicing their criticism, even though it's believed to be true and may in fact be true, because there can be doubt about whether it can be proved or just the fear of the expense of having to prove that it's true. and that was true in 1964, and it's equally true today.
1: Anthony? So I think one thing we should be mindful of in this discussion is the power of tort law. Um, the process of defending a lawsuit, the damages that can result from from liability can bankrupt defendants. And I think very oftentimes society is good, for, good with that because the defendants are just Plainly bad actors. But what's happening in Florida is implicating, I think, a different and more uh, generalizable constitutional principle that history should really warn us against, which is the right to criticize the state. And the way I think we need to think about this is to review the context of New York Times versus Sullivan, like the actual facts. So it arose out of a 1960 New York Times ad, it's a full ad um, that civil rights activists took out complaining about abuses in Alabama. And the ad, very correctly described the crackdown on civil rights protesters as this unprecedented wave of terror. The the plaintiff here, Sullivan, oversaw police in Montgomery, Alabama, and he took offense to the idea that he was, quote unquote, a Southern violator um, who was responsible for some of these bad acts. And he points to minor errors of fact and these allegations of police abuse as evidence that he's wronged. And so a jury turns around, hands him $500,000. Um, this is not an unfairly maligned man. What this was, it, a lawsuit, right? It was a lawsuit to uh, quash legitimate protests and dissent. And so this is why the Supreme Court creates the standard of actual malice that that if you're going to sue a public figure, they have to uh, they have to show that the, the the defendant recklessly disregarded the the truth. So now let's turn to Florida very quickly. This bill is part of a broader. Uh, trajectory in Florida politics. Governor DeSantis, I think, has been on a crusade to stifle dissent uh, on college campuses, uh, punishing corporations for speech, restricting access to books, censoring history, regulating teachers uh, and what they can say in the classroom, all sorts of things. So this, this kind of retrenchment is a part of a bigger democratic backsliding in Georgia with the freedom of speech uh, you know, is increasingly supplanted by the state legislating windows into people's head uh, heads and requiring viewpoint discrimination in lieu of a free par- marketplace of ideas. so there's there's a bigger illiberal mosaic that this piece of legislation and this proposal is part of, and I think we need to understand it in that broader context.
0: Um, Kevin, let me just throw out a couple things that the uh, Florida legislature is considering here. Um, among them, Adding a provision to state law specifying the comments made by anonymous sources are presumed false for the purposes of defamation lawsuits, lowering the legal thresholds for a so-called public figure to successfully sue for defamation. Um, the fact of the matter is in anonymous sources, in an, an organization like yours, Kevin, when uh, your journalists use anonymous sources... You're, you're all very caref- you're very careful to assure that those anonymous sources are legitimate and checked for their integrity and accuracy.
2: Absolutely. In fact, I talked to a group of high school students yesterday and gave them those details. In our organization, we require we would like to have three different sources confirming the same thing. If we're not going to name one, and if we are going to use an anonymous source, one of my direct reports, a managing editor, must approve it.
0: Okay. Um, I I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm interested in this is that um, Republican state, I mean, this happens in Democratic states as well, but when, in, when a piece of legislation like this starts bubbling up in a state like Florida, it's not too long <laughs> before other states like Georgia look at it and say, maybe we ought to try the same thing here. So we're going to have to watch and see how far that legislation gets down there and whether we eventually see it in uh, Georgia as well. I want to get the final break of the show out of the way. I want to talk about open records when we come back. Um, And I also want to talk about a subject that I know we're going to have to recuse at least one member of this panel from talking about, and that's the report of the special grand jury in Fulton County. You're listening to Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, uh, AJC reporter James Salzer, who works the Capitol beat, uh, broke and has continued reporting on a story that's gotten a lot of attention. Jeff Duncan, about to leave office, goes off on a European, what people call a junket, uh, in uh, the articles that James wrote. James wanted to know how much money was actually spent on this trip, uh, how it unfolded. And of course, he was blocked from some, some of that. Uh, Information because the legislature has uh, recused itself from open records, uh, which is something that continues to trouble uh, many people beyond just the journalism community
2: yeah uh, legislators have that habit of doing two things exempting themselves and endlessly messing with the law for what they portray as good reasons that turn out to be bad reasons and amidst this lack of public trust of media
0: there the temptations grow every day claire the legislature of this session added another layer to all of this they passed legislation which would uh, uh, can make private conversations that legislators have with, say, lobbyists and other parties who have interests in legislation, and uh, they are now uh, claiming uh, protection from having to reveal that to the media as well, Claire.
3: I mean, I think that's deeply problematic because it's really important for the public to know what interests were represented when a bill was passed and you know who was lobbying for it, what their reasons were, how much money and other resources they devoted to getting that law passed. And I think um, we need to have access to that. It should not be shielded by um legislative privilege, which is what these new rules provide for. And especially when we're talking about elected officials at the Golden Dome, we need to know who they're talking to and who they're listening to and if we want them to keep representing us.
1: Anthony? so. Yeah, so I'm going to make my friends down at the Gold Dome a little happy today, and and say I come from this as a from a legislative process perspective. So I, I think certainly transparency is important for a lot of reasons. I I think right what people spend, how much they spend, things of that nature should be certainly open for you know public consumption. What concerns me a little bit more would be this idea that. Broad uh, disclosure would be required for internal deliberations, which I think runs contrary to the speech or debate clause in the Georgia State Constitution, and right, which is a, is the parallel version of the the federal Constitution. So I do think that there might be some things right that are not legislative in nature, which sh- certainly should be uh, you know, right open for public view. But there's a lot of information that I think people intuitively want, but we really should be careful about exposing the legislative process and legislative right duties. Um, and, and that could also be corrosive, too, if it goes too far, I think. Tom?
4: Well, and one one thing that I think this example shows is how different the environment is now in the general Assembly and in the rest of the world. We talked about earlier on the show, Even Rupert Murdoch's email got exposed in the litigation involving Fox News at the highest levels of that corporation. His email, his text had to be disclosed. But the same thing doesn't happen with the legislators we pay to represent us. They're completely basically insulated by this legislative privilege.
0: Tom, um, to what extent is there a lack of transparency beyond just the legislators themselves who protect themselves against open records? I'm certain that you in your capacity as an attorney for media organizations have dealt with other examples of this.
4: Well, th- there's an enormous number of examples of exceptions now and in, uh, in excess of 30 exceptions to the Open Records Act. Some are sweeping, uh, some are not needed and some are needed. Um, there are certain areas that our government operates. Example would be the Department of Family and Children's Services, where we all acknowledge there's going to need to be some some protection from public disclosure for the family information. But there's a lot of other areas where there is not a need for separate for the secrecy. And I I think one of the most glaring examples right now is the Athletic Association for the University of Georgia system is protected from Open Records Act requests, not permanently, but for a 90 day window after an Open Records Act request is made. And that essentially allows them to Uh, withhold records for the entire period of time where those records are newsworthy and recent events demonstrate why why that's really a bad idea.
0: Yeah, Kevin, does that come into play in this investigation of the fatal accident which involved uh, uh, players from the team as well as a staff member of the team?
2: Yeah. In fact, Bill, I think this example of what's happening at the University of Georgia football program covers the arc of what we tried to deal with in the show, because the initial reporting, we were told, I mean, let's let's acknowledge the tragedy, a player and a staff member were killed in a horrible car wreck. And initially, we were told uh, it was a one car accident, and that was it. But through the, the effort that we made at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to get public records, including 911 calls and videos from cameras in Athens, we were able to show there was more to it. And then there was a very bad reaction among Georgia fans that we were making too much of it, and we continue to pursue it, and now we know there's a, the cops believe they were racing and that they were driving it over a hundred miles an hour and people were drunk. And it, it's a terrible tragedy, but there's more to it. But back to Tom's point about the 90 days, we have not heard from the university of Georgia football head football coach, Kirby smart. We do not know anything really about what he thinks. And unlike Rupert Murdoch, we can't demand that the institution that is supported by taxpayers and that pays his contract in in its way that we can't ask for those records and get them within a reasonable amount of time all right
0: uh, it a certain amount of courage <laughs> to take on what is i think inarguably the most beloved institution in the state of georgia the university of uh, georgia football team but but i it's been admirable to watch the coverage. All right, we now recuse Tom Clyde from the final discussion uh, today. Claire, you kind of referred to it without mentioning it, uh, and that's your concern about access to sealed documents. And I would think that it applies to the full report of the special grand jury in Fulton County, which uh, has released a report just to the court so far on exactly what they decided about who should be indicted. Who shouldn't be and the like. That case has now been thrown back by the state supreme court to a lower court. Why should the public and and media have access to that?
3: So this is actually a situation where I can see the arguments on both sides. Um, you know, the the whole structure of a grand jury investigation is flawed because it's a one-sided investigation run by the district attorney's office where they control who the witnesses are they control what what questions are asked and it's it's really a process that is vulnerable to manipulation because the jurors are just getting one side of the story um so at bottom I think we have to re-examine you know is the grand jury process something that we want to use because we're not required to. States have a choice. They don't have to use grand juries and some states have chosen not to do that. Uh, the federal government does under the U.S. Constitution, but states have the choice. Um, but in Georgia, we have you know grand juries that's written into our code. And so I do think that there's some due process concerns with releasing the entire report um, because of what I just said, that it's a very one sided investigation at this stage. And it, it's very possible for people to be accused or indicted that may down the road prove to be innocent, and so that's the argument for keeping grand jury reports um, and deliberations secret. And I, I do see the value in that. On the other hand, I think it's a bit of a tease for us to have gotten, you know, parts of the report, but not the whole report. Um, you know, this whole idea that. Some of the witnesses may have perjured themselves during the investigation. You know, we get a little paragraph about that, but it doesn't tell us who or what they might have perjured themselves about. And so I think releasing those selective pieces just sort of serves to undermine um, the integrity of the investigation. And so... You know, my view would be if you're not going to release all of it, don't release any of it. And I do think in Judge McBurney's decision, he makes very clear that eventually we're going to get the whole report. It's just not yet because it's still in an ongoing investigation by the district attorney.
0: Anthony, the attorney who argued the case for the group of news organizations that wanted to see this report argued that um, the public has a right to know that they have a right to understand how a, uh, a an investigation like this played out. Um, what's your take on that?
1: Well, ultimately, I, I certainly think that the report should come out, and I've always had that position. Um, I do think, however, when we saw the redacted version, it's a little bit more clear as to why Judge McBurney wanted to wait. This is not going to be a report that is going to flesh out everything the jury found, and it's not going to provide us a great amount of detailed and evidence or a narrative. And so what it's probably going to be is just a handful of this person we think should be charged under this statute. And and that is just kind of dropping a bombshell out there against potential defendants without, without any basis of evidence.
0: All right. We're almost out of time, but taking another page from this whole grand jury story, Tom Clyde, I'm curious about something. Um, What kind of vetting did you get? Did you have to be called in to do with the AJC in terms of this extensive interview, this exuberant interview that Emily Coors gave to Bill Rankin and and Tamara Hallerman? I assume you looked at the legal and whether there was anything about that that ought to be protected for legal reasons.
4: Uh, well, I, I won't talk about what I reviewed, but I will talk about this, that the Georgia Supreme Court has issued recently in the recent past, a decision that examined the contours of Georgia law about what grand jurors, the four-person, but the other members of the grand uh, jury, were are what secrecy they're subject to. And one of the things that Georgia Supreme Court noted was that the oath they take, has been circumscribed over time. So now it really only applies to deliberations. Uh, And so that helps uh, the grandeur, and in this case, the four persons speak.
0: Tom Clyde, you get the last word on today's edition of Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Anthony Michael Kreiss, and uh, uh, Claire Norins, thank you all so much for a terrific conversation. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, everybody, and stay healthy. Bye-bye.